scriptures can communicate different meetings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances, nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life. When I stumble, I will keep getting up relying on the grace and enabling power of Jesus Christ. I will stay in my covenant with him and work through my questions by study of God's word, by faith, and with the help of the Holy Ghost whose guidance I trust. I will seek his spirit every day by doing the small and simple things. This is my path of discipleship. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me. So this lesson is called Be It Unto Me According to Thy Word, and it covers Matthew 1 and Luke 1. And I think it's kind of interesting to know a little bit about who Matthew and Luke are to begin with. I think you were the one, you were, you were telling me how it was interesting that Luke was a Gentile. Luke was not part of the in crowd necessarily at the beginning, right? He was a physician, and Matthew was a publican tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector, but he was a Jew and was kind of in the, I don't know, wasn't as much of an outsider, I don't think, as Luke might have been from the beginning. Luke was obviously part of the society that everybody else was in, but being a Gentile, being a physician, I think it's just an interesting kind of different perspective and they actually both um based their their accounts off of mark's account they used his work as a trusted source kind of to remember and recreate their their own accounts of the savior's life and mission so i think they probably read through it and were like oh i remember that and here's what i want to say about it you know kind of like that what i thought was interesting you know, each one of these lessons has a, I don't know, what do you call it, a motto, a theme, be it unto me according to thy word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's two main examples. One is Mary, when the angel appears to her and lets her know, hey, you know what, you're going to be the mother of the Savior, you know. And, and then also with Matthew and Luke, I mean, with everyone, I think that theme carries to everyone in all these stories that you know if if you start with matthew and luke they were called and they had professions they had things and now they have to follow the savior with kind of uncertainty like what does this mean with mary and joseph it's kind of a really extreme scenario where she is now pregnant and he is supposed to marry her and what do we do you know uh, what does society tell us that we should do as opposed to what god tells us to do well it's i think it's just something that i've always thought about 
how challenging would this have been for everyone? We know how rigid the the Jewish culture was at the time, like following the rules. I mean, they still are in many ways, but like it was there were expectations of this is how you how things are supposed to go. You follow this process at this age, you get married once you're betrothed or espoused to each other. This is these are the following things that must occur. And that's not what happened for them. Like <laughs> um, the word espoused in Matthew 118. There's a there's a quote I found by Alfred Edersheim. In his book, Wife and Times of Jesus, the Messiah, he said. Mary was a betrothed wife of Joseph, their relationship as sacred as if they had already been wedded. Any breach of it would have been treated as adultery, nor could the band be dissolved except as after marriage by regular divorce. Yet months might intervene between the betrothal and marriage. So when someone's espoused, it's a I mean, it's a it's an engagement. It's whatever you want to call it. But it's basically like you're married. You're promised to each other. And for her to then come and say kind of out of the blue, hey, um, I'm going to have a child. And we're going to name him Jesus. It, I mean, it's a good thing that Joseph was the man he was and that he was able to also receive revelation from an angel himself. But as the story goes, that his his direct communication from an angel came later, came after she kind of told him, hey, this is what's happening. And he would have been well within his bounds under the Jewish law to be like, uh, what? I'm calling this whole thing off. You have committed adultery, right? You, you're telling me and that you're just out of nowhere going to have a baby? Like, that doesn't happen. That's not possible. But he didn't just jump to conclusions and assume the worst. He assumed the best. And he was probably very perplexed by this and very much like, what am I supposed to do now? Uh, but he didn't automatically get rid of her. And it says that in verses 19 through 21, uh, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. So the put, put away privily from the book Bible Background Commentary by Keener, it says, in New Testament times, Joseph would have merely been required to divorce Mary and expose her to shame. The death penalty was rarely, if ever, executed for this offense. But because divorces could be affected by a single document with two witnesses, Joseph could have divorced her without making her shame more widely known. So he even could have just been like, I'm going to just quietly end this, you know, just going to divorce her. We'll move on. Uh, she did me wrong somehow. The world doesn't need to know why, but we're, we're, we're not going to continue this relationship. But it just says to me, the example that when someone comes to you with something, don't automatically assume the worst. Don't automatically just want to want to condemn them. Hear them out. Seek revelation about things. Of course, this is an extreme example, right? This is not a common thing. But when the angel does come to him, I'm sure that was one of the most shocking things of his life, but also an incredible relief. Like, oh, okay, this is real. Okay, I can get behind this, you know. And yeah, there's still some societal things I'm going to have to work around because people are still going to be like, wait a second, y'all are having a child? You know, <laughs> like 
but it was probably like that's that's a less of a concern than what I was up against before this angel came. And you can tell that he was he he was in the right mindset to accept and to allow things to develop from there. So I, I think that's a I don't know, a really good example of not just having a knee jerk reaction when somebody comes to you with potential you know, news. We don't know much about Joseph. But you can tell that he was probably a really righteous person and had really good, you know, he was just a really good person. Yeah. Because you can see that even with within the law, it was within his right to accuse her of adultery and maybe even read the party that stones her, you know, you, you know, just, but that wasn't his intention, you know. And he was probably perplexed. He probably knew Mary really well. And he's like, how could this be? And that's where the, the angel comes and kind of explains. And he's like, okay. <laughs> but um, I find it interesting that this family, Joseph and Mary, and then you have Elizabeth and Zechariah, right? Yeah, Zechariah. Um, and they were righteous, and things did not happen to them the standard a b c and d type of binary way that we're used to things happening you know when when i'm 16 i get my driver's license when i'm 18 i go on a mission when i'm 21 i come back i get married six months after blah 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 then i have kids they all because we go to the temple they all are righteous right and then they all get married in the temple as well and then we get exalted you know on my 50th birthday blah 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 you know <laughs> you know and you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth were righteous. They were in their old age, and they wanted a child. And now they're told, hey, <laughs> they probably have put it out of their mind, you know, at this point. And then this is happening. And then it's funny that Gabriel uses that example to tell Mary that nothing with the Lord is impossible. Yeah. So for her, she's about to learn that, hey, you're going to carry the Son of God. And and then I think in Luke 1, verse uh, 36 and 37, it says, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So he, in the verse before, he tells her, The Holy Ghost will come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And 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 what you and you were going to have the Son of God, and then he uses so that in itself is probably really shocking and like wow that seems impossible, and then the he uses the example of Elizabeth hey you know your your cousin who is barren she's about to have a child and she's six months pregnant, and everyone thought that wasn't possible, and then the the famous scripture in verse thirty seven for with God nothing shall be impossible. And then, then that's when Mary says, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So, you know, to say that, I don't know. I, I like this interaction because it makes Mary and Gabriel and everybody involved seem pretty normal to me. Like, hey, I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to be really hard to hear and understand, but you're going to be the mother of God. You're going to give birth to, to Christ. And then they probably know, okay, they're probably familiar with the traditions of and the prophecies and, and wanting to 
to have the savior. I'm not sure how he's going to come. I don't know. And then that state, in her mind, she's probably thinking, how is this possible? And it's kind of like, I'm not going to tell you how it's possible. I'm going to tell you another example of something impossible that is the Lord made happen. So you can just trust on the Lord, you know. And then once he hears those two things, then it's, well, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, meaning behold, I'm here to do the Lord's will, you know. Yeah, the other thing I always think about is, especially for Mary and Joseph, this may not have been, I mean, obviously it was welcome news. It was it was amazing. It was but at the same time, once the initial shock of it wears off, it's like, oh, man, we're going to have to raise the son of God. Like, that's in a tremendous burden. And it's one that only you know about. For 30 years. You know, as your son is doing all this stuff, as he's growing, I'm sure he was special in some ways and probably uh, stood out among his peers in some ways. But. No one else was walking around going like, oh, yeah, well, of course he's got good grades. He's the son of God. You know, no one's doing that. Like that was something they knew that they were involved in. And they probably didn't know when when is this going to manifest? When is this going to become a thing that is publicly known? So for 30 years, essentially. They're kind of just like having to bear this on themselves and having to carry that weight of that responsibility on themselves alone. And so. You look at what Zacharias and Elizabeth had to do, which was bear this burden of not being able to have children for many, many, many years, and then finally getting this blessing. And you look at Joseph and, and Mary, who had a child right away, but then they had this thing for many, many, many years where they kind of had to wait to see how it would come to fruition. And it's all about waiting and about faith and about the Lord's timing and trusting in all of this to play out the way it's supposed to. Um, Zacharias was a priest, right? And he belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. I think that's how you say it. So there there were lots of priests. There were 24 orders or courses of priests. And each order would serve at the temple on a rotating basis during two separate weeks each year. Now there were 800 priests in the division of Abijah. So being chosen by lots, by chance, by drawing, basically, to burn incense would have probably been a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So he went to go do this. He's like, you know, this incredible opportunity, this honor as a priest to go in and burn incense in the temple by myself to go carry out this out for two weeks. He, t- he was like, now's my chance. I'm going to be essentially in the earthly presence of the Lord. Now's my chance to pray. And ask for this thing that we want the most. And he did. And then that's when he gets this vision, right? That you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And a lot of other guidance about him. How he should be and where he should live and whatnot. Um, then he's kind of, I don't know if it's that he's incredulous. Or if he's just kind of like, how how is this going to work? And I think it's easy to look at his... Uh, his condition of being mute as being a punishment, right? You didn't believe me right away, therefore I'm going to take away your ability to speak. I don't know that it's necessarily that. I I, I don't know. I think what it is is it's um you you need to think about this stuff and you need to 
be taking this seriously because John is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And you've got to you've got to take away all your doubts and throw them away and be pondering on how you are going to prepare this child to be the man he needs to be to prepare the way for the Messiah. Yeah, I think I think sometimes in these stories we tend to try to make a good and bad person. Yeah. You know, or like that God does things irregardless of their agency. You know, like um for example, Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, like you know, that that there was just this massive turning point, or Alma the Younger, you know, going about with the sons of Mosiah. They were wrong and God wanted him to do right, so he he fixed them real quick. Yeah. And it's like you're you're in and with this story with Zechariah and, and the mutes and all these things. So I think for him and Elizabeth to be part of this event, they both, to me, I think we're righteous, good people. You know, faithful, righteous. The way it plays out, we don't know all the details, like you said. Like, I don't think it was a punishment. It wasn't like, oh, you know, I, I said it once, don't make me repeat myself. Now here, suffer for however many months, right? I, I don't think that's, I, I think... It's a, it's, I don't know. I, I just think we have to leave it open to the fact that don't take anything away from the individuals as well. Like they themselves were righteous and did good things and weren't perfect. You know, it's like the the gentleman who asked the Lord to to heal his son, and he's like, uh, and the Lord asks him, "Do you believe?" And he's like, "Well, yeah." And then he's like, "Are you sure?" And he's like, "Well, help my unbelief." You know, I want to believe. I just, you know. And and I think I find it really interesting because Zechariah is is um, I don't know I I just I just think we need to be careful that we don't say oh you know because this happened to Zechariah then Elizabeth was the righteous one right and and he was just biding his time so he could repent or vice versa or because the Lord appeared to this person then this person was the unrighteous one and and I think in these scenarios I think they both were doing right. Um, you see it with Abraham and Sarah and, and, and other couples, Lehi and, and Sariah, you know, there's just, I think they both are human. They both go through learnings and they're both working together. Um, it, it's also different because when Elizabeth was told his name should be John, uh, then people started saying, you know, when the baby was born. Well, we should name him Zacharias after his father. Very common thing, you know. And this is probably going to be your only child, so might as well name him after you. And it was like, no, his name's going to be John. And people were like, yeah, but we should probably name him Zacharias, right? And that's when Zacharias wrote down his name should be John. And people were like, oh, my gosh. And then he was, it was like it was released. He was finally able to speak again. And honestly, I think, I don't know. I often think of this about my own kids. Like, obviously, they're not in the same situation as John the Baptist, but they are here for some reason. And they do have potential in their lives. And I always think, like, am I, what am I doing to help them reach their potential, whatever it may be? How am I preparing them? What, what experiences am I giving them? What example am I giving them? So that they can reach their full potential. And sometimes it does take some 
time to sit back and think about it and say, am I on the right track? Am I giving them the right, the right experience? And I think that's really what the Lord provided for Zechariah was, you know what? I'm going to take away your ability to speak. I'm going to give you that challenge. But at the same time, I think that's going to free you up a little bit to think in your own head. Prepare yourself for the task that you have ahead of you. Because you're going to raise this son. You and your wife are going to raise this son to prepare the way of the Messiah. And he's got an, an extremely important job. And he's, he needs to know what his role is from day one. You know, I don't know. I, I To me, it was just like a, a really interesting way for the lord to kind of say this is real and this is important and i need you to take it seriously and i don't know a lot of the the waiting that we see in these people long suffering uh, and the faith that they exhibit i think is is really really great i think as president nelson in his talk uh, with god nothing shall be impossible he said you who may be momentarily disheartened remember life is not meant to be easy Trials must be borne and grief endured along the way. As you remember that with God nothing shall be impossible, know that he is your father. You are a son or daughter created in his image, entitled through your worthiness to receive revelation to help with your righteous endeavors. You may take upon you the holy name of the Lord. You can qualify to speak in the sacred name of God. It matters not that giants of tribulation torment you. And I think that that's really the lesson that we're learning from this is that when, when they say, for God, nothing shall be impossible, look at these two examples and understand that sometimes it's going to take endurance. Sometimes it's going to take a little bit of uncomfortable feelings. Honestly, even after Mary and Joseph both knew, both accepted what was going to happen, there was still a lot of explaining that had to happen to their families, you know? There's a, a really good movie called the, the Nativity, I think it's called. And it's not produced by the church, but there's two scenes in it that are really awesome for me. One is when they basically are telling their families they're going to have a child. And their families are kind of like, what, what do you mean? You haven't, you're not married. You haven't had a chance to have a child. Like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, we know, but this is what's going to happen. And the families are, are kind of the father of Joseph is like, no, 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 no. This is not good. This is something's up here. And he basically stands up and says, I am going to be the father of this child and kind of silences them because he's just like, this is what's going to happen. We're, we've determined this is what's going to happen. And the other scene is when they're on their way to Bethlehem. They kind of stop for having lunch and uh, they kind of look at each other and they're like, what are we doing? Like, we're going to have the son of God? And Mary's like, can you believe this? And he, he says something like, I just don't know what I'm going to teach him. And there's this human moment when you're like, these people are like you and I in some ways where it's like, how am I going to teach anything to the son of God? What am I being entrusted with? And every time I think about that, I always think, you know, my children are not the same. But at the same time, I have just as much responsibility to their growth and development and well-being as they did. Like, what what am I going to teach them? What do I want them to know coming out of this? I want them to know that with God, nothing is impossible. I want them to have experiences where they have challenges and they're able to overcome, overcome them and remind them, you did this because 
you've been doing all these other things that have led to to blessings. Um, I don't know. There's a lot to be learned from from just these two chapters, I think. At the end of Luke 1, I thought it was interesting how in verse 67, it says in his father, Zacharias, this was after he 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 said that his name should be John. And he was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. And so he prophesies about uh, blessed be the name of the God of Israel. And he's visited and redeemed his people. Um, he spake. You know, he, he's talking about the, the the prophecies and promises that were made through David about the Savior coming and, and that he will save us from our enemies, you know, in the oaths. that So he's kind of tying all of these great events that they're about to live through and living through, through all the scriptures and prophecies that have come before about the Savior redeeming and saving his people. And then... And then at the end, it's it's kind of like the mission of John the Baptist to declare these things. And I find it funny because Zechariah just got done prophesying, and he's not going to be around <laughs> probably for for the Savior's ministry. I, I don't know how long they live, but but they were ripe in their age. And then John is the one that then now takes. I wonder how much he learned from his father, you know, because we say John the Baptist. You know, at the end it says, uh, and, and the, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the days of his showing unto Israel. And when we later on read more about that, John the Baptist, he kind of seems like kind of an eccentric figure that would uh, like eat honey and, and would dress in animal skins and would kind of dwell in the desert. But he would go and preach and then people, he started having a really big gathering and effect. Prepared. And most of the disciples and apostles that Jesus Christ uh, would call were first disciples of John. You know, they, they were his students. And, and I, it wasn't until this go around that I thought, wow, I wonder, you know, if he's out in the desert doing what? Learning from whom? Probably learning from his father. You know, and in another testament that Zechariah was, was probably a really good father and a really righteous man, you know, and he, you know, so I, I find that interesting. And and then the other part that I don't know how much of this is in, you know, how the translation and the years and what changes things, but, but you know, he dwelt in the desert. Could he have been like, you know, living with cactus and sagebrush? Or does it mean like he was raised different than the youth of that day? He so, didn't follow the traditional customs of upbringing that were expected. And that's why he was chosen and different. And that's why he could have a different perspective to bring to the people. So, yeah, he was he was a Nazarite, um, which was a customary thing in ancient Israel. Sometimes they would dedicate certain sons of God. Right. Um, and the consecrated sons were called Nazarites. Not to be confused with Nazarenes. Those are people from Nazareth. Um, but the Nazarites were under a vow to abstain from wine, from any cutting of the hair, and any contact with the dead. Uh, the Nazarite vow could could have been just for a short period or could have been for their entire lifetime. So it just depended on like what the purpose of it was. 
but the purpose was to attain purity and worthiness um, to work in, in the work of the Lord, the work of God. And so I think it would not have been super unusual for somebody like Zacharias, who was a priest, and Elizabeth, who was quite clearly a faithful woman, to have their only child be born late in their lives and then them kind of consecrate him as a Nazarite. Like, this is a special child we've gotten as a huge blessing. Clearly, this is meant to be a situation where we should dedicate his life to God. Think about Hannah and Samuel, right? Hannah, who said, if I have a child, I will give him to the Lord. Same type of idea where it's like, that wouldn't have been something that was incredibly unusual uh, to say, basically, we're going <laughs> to dedicate his entire life to the preaching of the gospel and ser serving God. Interestingly, I think that this is this is kind of speculation. I think that he and Jesus knew each other and they knew each other's roles. I think that was probably something those families knew well and taught their children well. Because you know that when they met out in, in the desert, when Jesus starts his ministry officially and goes to be baptized, John is kind of like, whoa, shouldn't I be baptized by you? Because he knows him and he knows what his role is and he knows who he is. And that's when he's like, no, no, no. You know, you should baptize me because we need to fulfill all righteousness. But I, I think that John... I don't think it was ever in question what his what his role was, what his life was going to be like. And I think setting him aside in that way from the rest of society was intentional. And I think it was also everyone even around them knew that this is not a normal kid. You know, this this person is dedicated to God and he's living this lifestyle of purity and and separation from the menial stuff of life. When the Savior starts his ministry, very Frequently, don't they, the the Sadducees, and they kind of point out, hey, isn't this Joseph's son, the son of a carpenter? Isn't this, the, you know, and it's almost like they had a social structure where, almost like a caste system, you know, like everybody had a role, you know, and for you to step outside of that role, you know, it was kind of weird, and I wonder... Maybe that's why John the Baptist had to be so unique because there there was nothing to tie him to. Isn't this uh, the laborer? Isn't this the mailman? Isn't this? And it's like uh, we actually don't know who this guy is from the desert, <laughs> and so so we don't get caught up in these social rigid rules that they had. You know, President Nelson he talks about the importance of Christ having a mortal mother and an immortal father. And the atonement of Jesus Christ required a personal sacrifice by an immortal being, not subject to death, yet must die and take up his body again. The Savior was the only one who could accomplish this. So in the story of Mary, you know, why why did it have to be like this? Why did it have to be a virgin birth? Why did it have to be half human, half uh, immortal? Or God, right? And I think, as far as we know, the why is what the prophet is saying is it was his unique nature that allowed him to carry out his role of being the savior and carrying out the atonement. And I'm sure there's more to that that we'll find out one day, but 
that's all we know. You know? And then the other part is about talking about God's timing and God's blessing. If we put ourselves in the role of Zechariah and Elizabeth or the role of Joseph and Mary, um, we can see, or even the role of John the Baptist, you know, or, or any one of these individuals, you, you are foreordained you maybe to do certain things. You, are, you have your own agency to be righteous in the path you choose. And then you have certain blessings and things you want to accomplish. And all these things come at their own time. I mean, Sakura and Elizabeth could easily have been bitter still and said, why didn't we get a baby in our youth that we could have raised and enjoyed it, taking them to Lagoon and taking them to Disneyland, right? You know, and now we're old and decrepit and we're not going to see him grow, you know? Like, every blessing has a complaint that we can make about it. But it's kind of more of a sign of where our heart is. And like we talked about last lesson, keeping that eternal perspective. When we, when our heart is in the right place, um, the peace that the Savior provides us is a peace that allows us to view our afflictions and our trials and our blessings through the right perspective. So we can say, this is a wonderful thing, you know, and not always look at, oh, but why couldn't this have happened this way? Or why, you know, because we, especially in our society now with technology, with comment sections, with Facebook, with everything we have, we, we tend to anal want to analyze everything, break everything down. What is the optimal way something could have happened? Oh, somebody got run over by a truck. Well, that's why you shouldn't you shouldn't have trucks. And, and somebody else will be like, that's why everyone should know biking rules. And that's why you have reflective. And everybody wants to analyze 2020 hindsight. What's the ideal situation that nothing bad would have ever have happened? Right. And I don't know that that's how peace with the Savior works. Think peace with the Savior works is we learn from the things that happen to us and we continue to have gratitude and we continue to have hope and optimism and sometimes the path we take is the right path although if if it gets us to the to learn you know if it doesn't get us to learn I think that the atonement is so powerful that even the mistakes that we've made once we're right with God, they they become correct. They become corrected, and and it becomes part of us. It becomes part of how we change and how we learn. I'm trying to. I, I know what I'm trying to say. I just have the hardest time explaining. No, it makes sense. And when we made this podcast, we named it Go and Do because we wanted to ask the question like, now what? Right. So this is a nice story. So what? What does this mean for us? What do we, how do we make this actionable somehow? Like what how does the how do the scriptures change how we act and what we do? And I don't know. I think in this case, I I think about what maybe it's something we, we ought to think about is what are you preparing for now? What are you preparing for in your life that maybe you're not aware of that might be coming? Um, what are you preparing those around you for? What what challenges are you currently experiencing that you're kind of like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get through this. This has been a long time and I don't know if I'm ever going to get through this. Like all of these things are applicable to us. How do I take these stories of Elizabeth and Zacharias? How do I take the story of Mary and Joseph, of John the Baptist, who 
prepared the way for the Savior, and how do I apply these to myself? And then what does that make me do? And I just I just have to look at it like each of us is going through something that has probably been challenging for us for a long time. Or we're in the middle of preparations for something. We may not be 100% sure of what that's going to be like. We don't know what callings are coming our way. We don't know what challenges might be coming our way or what blessings, um, what opportunities might be coming our way. So in what ways are you actively preparing for that stuff to happen? And in what ways are you seeking out blessings in a righteous way, saying, I'm doing my part, Heavenly Father. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I know that with you, nothing is impossible. So I'm I'm ready whenever you are, you know, and then staying ready and staying available and staying in touch with the spirit so that, you know, when those blessings are coming. Um, that's what I think is maybe maybe think about what does the future hold or what what can I look forward to? And in what ways am I preparing for when these blessings come? Um, every time I, I receive a blessing or, or I get something that I've been waiting for for a long time, my first emotion is always gratitude. And my second emotion is, OK, now how am I going to give back? You know, in what ways can I start to contribute to the benefit of others? And I'm, I, I have to look at it that way because blessings don't come just like, OK, now you've received this. Now you're good. It's always, how can I push this forward? How can I help someone else also receive knowledge or or just uh, relief from from trials? I, I think about the waiting on the Lord theme, uh, even from Isaiah, you know, when he says, no one is ashamed who waits on the Lord, right? Um, and maybe all of scripture, there's a, theme of people waiting on the Lord, which we have to, which is interesting because we're not waiting on him because he's taking a long time getting ready or he's taking a long time to cook up whatever he's cooking up. You know, it's we're waiting on him because we have this desire and it's actually more waiting on us, (laughs) you know, and there are certain things I think that waiting occurs. I mean, there's waiting like you plant a seed in the ground and you're waiting for something to grow. And there's something that there's not much we can do to speed up that seed germinating and sprouting and becoming a tree and bearing fruit. And then there's waiting like you we need a miraculous something. And it's like Moses stepping into the, the Red Sea, you know, and it needs to be now type of scenario. And then there's other waiting where it's not waiting on us or the Lord. Maybe it's waiting on somebody else, you know. Um, and all of these scenarios can be very hard sometimes because one of the things that we're cursed with as humans is the ability to think ahead. <laughs> and we can think ahead and imagine what something would be like, how great a situation would be or how alleviation from current stresses or sorrows or bondage now would make us even happier, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a difficult thing. And one of the things I like to think about when I, I get the blessing I've been waiting for, the Lord answers me. I think about how I felt when I first wanted whatever it was and how I feel now that I have it and what change occurred in that time. And then I realize that 
I got it as quickly as I could receive it. You know, it's almost like uh, I think the Lord is waiting to bless us as quickly as he can, as is possible, depending on our growth, our agency, and the agency of others, you know. And um, and when we, when we start, I, almost like King Benjamin, when you start realizing that we are always in his debt, that even the ability to breathe and think and just ponder and even the desire to want something, we're all indebted to him, our creator. Um, and and I, I feel that way when I notice how in my life I have changed over time and learned things and that pattern of learning and growth. It's, it's I don't know, it's interesting because the Lord is wanting to teach me even more. And just as now I feel like, wow, I finally understand something. Well, I'm probably very ignorant about many other things, you know. Um, and the Lord is patient, always. When we read in the scriptures and people prophesy or, you know, talk about the Lord and their immense love for him and his ability to redeem. And, you know, where does that come from? It comes from all these personal experiences where we feel that we thought we knew and then he showed us and we're like, wow, okay, I know more now. And then we think we're great and then we sh- we get close to him again and we see, wow, I have so much more to do. And then you realize that his love, he's always been there and been so patient and kind and long-suffering with us and how quickly we are to judge others and criticize and be upset and all this is misery and, and stuff. And, you know, repeatedly, I one of the, my favorite parts about the New Testament is repeatedly how the Lord in his ministry and to his disciples, he talks about peace. And he talks about being a good cheer, you know. And then he talks about seeking and finding and knocking and it shall be given to you. It's like these three themes I always find in the New Testament where I think he's really trying to get something across to us. And if he was sent with the expectation that everybody's thinking, here's the Redeemer. He's going to deliver us from our enemies and our oppressors. And to them, it wasn't a political enemy or the, you know, military oppressors that the Romans were, were their overlords and stuff. It was yourself, the sins, the natural man. It was all those things where it, like all of that perfectly you can copy and paste it to our time and just download it into yourself because it's exactly what we need in our day, you know? In our relationship with the Savior, he looks on the heart and is no respecter of persons. Consider how he chose his apostles. He didn't pay attention to status or wealth. He invites us to follow him, and I believe he reassures us that we belong with him. I testify that we grow in our discipleship when we exercise faith in the Lord during difficult times. As we do so, he will mercifully strengthen us and help us carry our burdens. The Savior knows your struggles in detail. He knows your great potential to grow in faith, 
hope and charity. The commandments and covenants he offers you are not tests to control you. They are a gift to lift you towards receiving all the gifts of God and to returning home to your Heavenly Father and the Lord who love you.